It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast. This is Bill Corey, sports editor of the Providence Journal. I'm in downtown Providence with our Red Sox beat writer, Bill Koch. Bill, how's it going? That's going well, Bill. How are you? I'm all right. You know, uh, is it uh, is it accurate now to say the Red Sox are on a roll? Uh, by the standards that they've <laughs> set previously in this 2020 season, I would say that winning back-to-back games qualifies as a roll. Not exactly a high bar this year. I think this is, as you mentioned, the second or the third time this year that they've actually won two games in a row. I think it's a third time. Uh, and so their record uh, stands at, uh, let's see, 8-18. Eight and 18. Uh, which qualifies them for dead last in the American League East still. Um, uh, but hey, uh, things are certainly better today than they were a few days ago. Bill, uh, the last time we talked uh, on the podcast, uh, they were about to uh, head down to New York for the series against the Yankees, I mm, believe. Yes. And uh, I don't think either of us had very high hopes. And uh, well, it it went as poorly as could go. <laughs> <It did. laughs> they were swept by the Yankees. They um, had previously been swept by the Rays. I want to say the Rays for four games. For, yes. So it was a uh, it was a total of a uh, eight game skid, and then they lost the first game back home against the Phillies to make it a nine game skid, uh, in which time they've almost but cemented themselves as being completely out of the playoff picture. Yeah, eight and eighteen with only thirty-four games left is, is generally not going to get it done. Uh, you know, you've been completely outclassed by the two teams at the top of your division, the Yankees and the Rays, and I, I think that's probably you know where we should start, Bill. The fact that they are so far away from those two clubs right now. Uh, the nine-game losing streak, they allowed 86 runs, which is the most in franchise history in a nine-game stretch. Unbelievable. You have to remember, you know, when we say things like that, we put numbers out there like that, you know, it's the most or the worst or the best or whatever else. The Red Sox started playing baseball in 1901. <laughs> it's 120 years. Yeah, right. And so when you consider that baseball over different eras, whether it's the live ball, the dead ball, the live ball again, steroids, whatever else. Mm -hmm. The fact that you're giving up the most runs over nine games in franchise history, it's just really sobering to watch. And and it's not a surprise that you ended up losing all nine. No. And and first of all, a tip of the cap to the Rays, who have really been playing uh, well. They've overtaken the Yankees at this point. The Yankees are kind of beat up a little bit, um, but uh, the Rays are in the first place in the AL East. Um, but you're right. Uh, the the disparity between the Red Sox and the top of the division is is enormous. Um, and uh, the uh, president of baseball operations, uh, or whatever his title is, Hyam Bloom, the chief baseball officer. That's right, the chief baseball officer. Uh, you know, uh, talked about the Red Sox fortunes in terms of the long term prognosis of the team this week, and it was something you wrote about, Bill. Uh, and you know. I, I can understand certainly wanting to take a look at the long term because the short term is nothing pretty. Mm. Uh, So why don't you take us back and tell us what uh, that conversation with Haim Bloom was, who held a, I guess, uh, availability prior to one of the games in the past few days. Uh, It was Wednesday afternoon uh, before the getaway day against the Phillies. It was sort of a state of the union uh, of the Red Sox, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say. And executives do this from time to time over the course of the year, sometimes when they're going really well, sometimes when they're not going as well. Uh, This happened to be a, a latter case. Um, you know, Bloom met with us probably for about 25 minutes or so, I, I would say, on Wednesday. Covered a lot of ground in there. Met with you virtually. Yes, mm-hmm. on Zoom, of right. course. Uh, all these are all these interviews are on Zoom mm-hmm. these days. Um, covered a lot of ground. And, and I a couple of the primary takeaways that I had, maybe the, the first couple of reactions I had, were he's clearly been empowered by John Henry and, and by Tom Werner. To do this over a certain period of time, there's not a ton of urgency there coming through in terms of trying to win in 2020 or trying to win even in 2021. They are focused on sustainability, flexibility, trying to win year in and year out. A lot of buzzwords there, I I think. Um, you know, the second thing, and, and I think this is important because the trade deadline is is August 31st. I think it was important to have him speak ahead of that in light of some of the comments made by Tom Werner and Sam Kennedy 
previously. Mm. Uh, you have Tom Werner on Nesson, Sam Kennedy on WEI, the team's two broadcast outlets, saying that we don't have enough pieces to compete. That was Tom Werner. And Sam Kennedy saying that no one here is untouchable. Right. And I think it's important to hear from someone in the front office in light of those comments, maybe more so to speak to the players publicly, to put out some sort of public message that we're going to operate this way and it's going to happen this way and maybe we're not just going to trade everyone on the roster and maybe we're, you know, you're more secure here and maybe more part of the future than than you think. Um, The Red Sox, though, they opened that door. They did it themselves Hmm. between Werner and and Kennedy. And so I think Bloom was sort of put out there to address a lot of the things that that have been going on recently. But I think that was a big part of it. For sure. I mean, you're not going to bring in somebody like Hyam Bloom who had the success that he had in Tampa Bay doing things a certain way and expect him to do things a different way. Obviously, we know that uh, a lot of the motivation here was driven by John John Henry's desire to get under the competitive balance tax as – uh, as we've uh, talked about and you've written about many times. Uh, and the point that you made is a good one, Bill, that, uh, that uh, Bloom has sort of the um, the authority or he's been empowered to talk about the long term for a little bit. It's not as though, you know, oh, geez, you know, we really stink this year. We're going to rip everything apart and get rid of everybody. Obviously, uh, this is part of what Bloom likes to think of as a plan that's going to take a few seasons to come to fruition. Obviously, the big question, if you're a Red Sox fan, is how long are you going to wait for this? Um, you know, the Red Sox are not in the uh, habit of of uh, being bad for very, very long. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, on uh, one of your stories uh, recently, you put up a poll on Twitter asking the fans, you know, basically, what's your patience here? How long would you be willing to sit through bad baseball, losing seasons? Uh, and you got a pretty healthy response. Why don't you tell us about that poll? Yeah, you know, it, it was just a thought that I had the other night. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm in contact with a lot of friends who are Red Sox fans, and, and they always want to talk about the team and what's going on with the team and, right. you know, where I feel like they're going and, and what sort of vibe I get from, you know, the manager, the players, whatever else. And, you know, having grown up in this area like you, um, you know, I've seen the Red Sox be good. I've seen them be bad. I've seen them be mediocre and, right. and have no one really care. Uh, recently, under Henry and, and Werner, I think the standards have been raised. Uh, they've certainly invested in the team. Uh, they've brought four championships here, which is the most in this century. Mm-hmm. Uh, they deserve credit for all of that. Uh, you know, ending the curse and sort of giving us these great moments. Um, you know, that that's never going to be forgotten. But it does raise the bar to a point where you know fans around here would have certain expectations, and when you are spending a certain amount on your payroll, you should expect uh, to win a certain amount of games to be in contention. Um, and so I think this year, when they trade Mookie Betts in February, it, it sort of gives you an idea that not that they're not trying to win this year, but they're not prioritizing this year in any way, shape, or form. The the one main goal coming into this year was getting under the competitive balance tax, resetting those penalties, trying to reset the roster going forward. Um, so I think everyone had an idea that whether this was 162 games or 60 games, they weren't going to contend realistically. Um, and I guess maybe I asked that question on Twitter uh, sort of – to, to take the temperature of the room, is that acceptable to you, hmm. that the Red Sox punt on a season? And, and do you feel okay with them doing that if it brings them to a better place long-term? And, and so the natural follow-up to that is, when do you expect that long-term right. to happen? How and, long is your patience for this? And the responses were about what I expected. Uh, 2022 was the winner in the poll. Mm-hmm. Um, folks want a contender. In two seasons, yeah, uh, you know this curtailed 2020, hopefully a full 2021, and by 2022 back at the top of the division. The runner-up in the poll was also what I expected, which is the Red Sox should contend every year, mm. regardless of circumstances, because of what they spend and because of what we spend yeah. to go to the ballpark to have Nesson, whatever else. Uh, you know the 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 two other choices were 2021 and 2023 which got lesser responses. But the the voting sort of went the way 
that I expected it to go. I, I wonder how you would have weighed in on it. I, I'm with the last group. I, I think the Red Sox should always contend. And, you know, and I, I think my feelings are in line with the responses there that this is a big market team. They spend a lot of money. We spend a lot of money as fans. Uh, for the merchandise, for the tickets, for all the, the sort of uh, challenges it is to to go to a, a game at Fenway Park, obviously with the parking and, and just the traffic and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm saying this as a sports fan and as the sports editor of a paper. So I obviously want the Red Sox to be good every year because it's better for us. Sure. But uh, even if I wasn't the editor of the paper and I was just a, a, a Red Sox fan, uh, I would want the Red Sox to be good all the time. Because you're right, they have set a very high bar uh, in the, t- in the uh, two decades that Tom Warner and, uh, and John Henry and company have owned the team. And you're right, they should continue to get credit for what they've done because you and I... Uh, both remember the Red Sox when they weren't always contending. Of course, uh, they certainly had some great teams in the past, and they weren't never really able to get over the, the hump. Uh, you know, it, it had been uh, the early part of the uh, of the of the twentieth uh, century from the last time they were able to win a championship prior to the '04 season. So we've lived through a lot of the heartbreak and saw a lot of the bad teams, but that all changed really in the early two thousands. Mm. They've uh, they've sank a lot of money into the stadium. Fenway Park is looking better than it's ever looked. Uh, they've gotten some big-time players. You think of Manny Ramirez and Pedro Martinez and certainly David Ortiz. And um, and they've certainly spent a lot of money on a lot of these top-flight uh, players. Mm-hmm. And we've spent a lot of money as fans. Uh, you know, I know that you and I are in the media, so we don't necessarily have to spend that same money because we can go uh, on press passes. But uh, we actually, I still go and pay ticket prices too when I'm bringing my friends or family or whatever. Um, and I, I just, it's hard for me uh, as, for, as somebody who's followed this team as closely to sort of give them a pass for a season or two. You know, I understand you're not you're not always going to have a competitive team. I mean. Uh, you know, you win the World Series one year, you return almost the same team, and you have very different results. I get that. Right. But this year, obviously, is very different. They've intentionally gotten there, made their team worse. And, and you and I have talked about the Mookie Betts deal many times. Yes. That doesn't make your team better, at least not now. Not in 2020, no. Right. Uh, so how long is, the, is your patience? Um, you know, for me, I think you should always be trying to, uh, always be trying to contend. And the thing that, that gets to me, Bill, is, you know, it's one thing to have a philosophy and to bring somebody in to execute that philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to, pan- to panic and then change your philosophy and do things that you said you weren't going to do in the beginning. And what I'm referring to, obviously, is, you know, we think back of the whole John Lester uh, situation. They didn't want to sign a player, uh, who a pitcher who was approaching 30 or over 30 to, right. to big money contracts. And they tried to sort of finagle away without Lester. And then they ended up sent, signing uh, David Price. Uh, a few years after that, and it's like, well, what happened to your philosophy? You right. know, right. so I wonder because you know the the fact is that this is happening in Boston. It's very different when you're doing it in St. Petersburg, Florida, for the Tampa Bay Rays, yes. where you can't really fill the stadium. It, you know, Tampa Bay base, Tampa Bay, uh, Tampa Bay Ray baseball is not that big of a deal. Uh, certainly not to the same level that Boston Red Sox baseball is up here in New England. Correct. Uh, so, you know, you can sort of have those years where you just sort of kiss them off and say, well, we're, re- we're rebuilding. We're getting ready for the future. And I think, you know, fans will sort of buy into it. I think it's a lot harder to do it up here and expect that to be sort of the ongoing philosophy for a few years. That, that was always, <clears throat> you know, my general question, my, my general you know, maybe sort of of thirty thousand foot view. My skepticism about bringing in someone like Hyam Bloom from an organization like the Rays, right? Who who has proven himself to 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 uh, have a great eye for talent and know how to value players and all that. It's just a different dynamic when you're doing it. You know, if you brought him in and say and said, "Here, here you go. Here's unlimited resources. Do what you do." That's one thing, but you're not doing that. You're bringing him in with the sort of agenda to say, "Hey, you need to figure out how we don't spend as much money." You know, it, it's it's a matter of, you know, and I cover college basketball in the off season, uh, in the winter months. I cover URI. Um, you know, I anticipate this winter I'll be covering PC uh, a little bit more as well. Um, you look at college basketball, and, and it is a caste system 
Um, you know, it's sort of the haves and the have-nots, right. and, and somewhere in the middle are, are teams that occasionally can make a run and can get to the NCAA tournament and do something in March. Right. If you're at Kentucky, let's say, with Kentucky's history and Kentucky's resources and the ability to recruit the players that Kentucky can recruit, mm-hmm. the expectations are different at Kentucky than they would be at the University of Rhode Island. Of course. They're playing the same sport. But they're not playing it with the same sort of pedigree, the same sort of backing, in the same conferences, with the same access to being excellent. Uh, At Kentucky, if you don't make the Final Four in a three- or four-year stretch, you could get fired. At URI, you're given a three- or four-year stretch just to make the NCAA tournament. Sure. Um, Or even longer for some coaches. Right. And and so, uh, well, that's true. Right. Um, And so I think, you know, baseball, yes, they're all professionals. The the competitive balance tax is all the same. There is revenue sharing. They're all getting TV money, you know, from the major networks, whether it's Fox or TBS or, or anybody else. But the bottom line is, when you're in Boston or in New York or in Los Angeles or in Philadelphia or in Chicago, big markets that have huge financial resources behind the team, your expectations are going to be different than they're going to be in Tampa Bay or in Kansas City or in Oakland. Right. Um, it, it's just it's a different game. You're playing a different game, and, and so fans have been conditioned over time. You know, really, this last generation of Red Sox fans and Boston sports fans in general right. have been conditioned to expect winning. Um, and so when you see a team trade Mookie Betts in February and David Price in February, you understand that they are not going to be a better team in 2020 for doing that. You wonder what sort of acceptance level there will be among the fan base, what sort of patience level there will be among the fan base for that process. And, and so that's sort of maybe what I was trying to get to um, in, in, in putting out that poll and, and in writing that story, uh, which you can find at ProvidenceJournal.com. Um, it, it's definitely interesting to see different perspectives, to hear, you know, maybe the, the sort of different levels of urgency that, that, you know, some of your friends, some of your family members, some of your coworkers might have in, in terms of the team that you all watch and follow. You know, part of the frustration, I think, and I can just speak for myself here, is that when they won the World Series in 2018 and you looked at that team and you looked at that roster, you felt that there were some... Uh, cornerstone players who were going to be around for a long time that and you felt well we're going to be on a roll here as as the Red Sox uh you know as as Red Sox fans on uh, as the Red Sox nation because you had young stars like Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts um Raphael Devers Raphael Devers right, right? sure uh and you felt uh you know pretty good about uh, having Chris Sale maybe you, didn't, you obviously weren't we weren't sure what the whole health situation would be back then uh, you still had David Price, who was obviously a big contributor to that team. Uh, so you look, at, you could look at that team and say, you know, we really have the building blocks in place to be a, a really competitive team for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the next season didn't work out very well, uh, and now it's sort of, uh, sort of like in a rebuild mode. Especially now with the comments that almost anybody is available to be traded. You don't say that with a team that you feel you're going to keep together for a long period of time. And, and so I think when they say that no one is untouchable um, and they come out and say that we don't have the piece necessary to compete, I think Red Sox fans can, can only be justified by going back to February and saying, well, if they traded Mookie Betts, they could trade anyone. Sure. It could be anyone. Right. You know, they right. just moved the best guy on the roster. Now, granted, his contract situation is what it is. He said he wanted to go to free agency. He only had one year left of team control. I understand all that. But if you're a player in that clubhouse, you're looking around and you're saying to each other, they just traded Mookie. They could trade any of us. Sure. It it could happen tomorrow. Yep. Um, There's not necessarily going to be that sort of long-term loyalty, uh, you know, any sort of... of, uh, you know, cornerstone pieces anymore because we just moved the ultimate cornerstone. Um, you know, the guy who is better than, than all of us. Um, <laughs> right. You know, we, we just moved him out. And so I right. think a lot of what was going on the other day with, with sending Bloom out and, and some of the comments made by Ron Renneke as well um, might have been to just reassure the players that, look, you know, this isn't going to be a complete teardown. Yeah. You don't need to worry about putting your house on the market or your apartment on the market or anything like that. Um, we're just going to explore all avenues. And to be fair, you know, players know that that's a part of the business. They understand that coming up. 
they handle those things a lot differently than, than fans do. They're a lot less emotional about it. I, I think <clears throat> if you go back to, if you've seen Moneyball, um, great movie with Brad Pitt talking about the A's and, and how they built you know, sort of a, a really competitive team in the early 2000s mm-hmm. on, on maybe lesser resources. Uh, the book by Michael Lewis, pick it up. It, it's a wonderful read and, and explains a lot about how we've gotten to baseball in 2020. Yep. Uh, the scene where they have the Jonah Hill character, who is Peter Brand, that's Paul D. Podesta, trading Carlos Pena and, and informing Carlos Pena that he's been traded. Yep. Um, you know, Billy Bean says to Brad Pitt, says to Jonah Hill, you, you got to go tell Carlos he just got traded to the Tigers. And you know, Jonah Hill had never done that before. He was mm-hmm. worried about it because right. he came from, you know, more of a numbers background. You know, economics, analytics wasn't in person-to-person sort of relationship building. Right. If I remember correctly, he was playing role. the manager, right? He was playing Art. Was it Art Howe? Who was he playing? No, he was he was playing Paul D. Podesta. Oh, too well. He was, oh, the, he was GM. the assistant GM. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and and. You know, Brad Pitt says to him, you're, you're going you're gonna to have to learn how to do this someday if you want to be a GM, so right. you may as well start now. <laughs> right. So he calls in Carlos Payne and he says, Carlos, you've been traded to the Tigers. Here are your travel arrangements. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to call this person and they're going to set you up on a flight. And the character playing Carlos Payne, looks up and he says, that's it? And Jonah Hill says, yep, that's it. They shake hands, he walks out the door. Right. That's how it looks yeah. when a player gets traded. It's not some big dramatic thing behind the scenes. Now, depending on who the player is, you're going to have a different person addressing him. If you trade Mookie Betts or you trade Xander Bogarts, you might have Sam Kennedy in the room or Haim Bloom in the room. It's going to be someone beyond the manager. Right. Uh, if you're trading a top prospect, let's say, you might have the farm director or the scouting director yep. in there along with his minor league manager. Um, it's going to be commensurate with who the player is and, and what he means to the organization. Sure. But the conversations are generally very businesslike, very transactional. You know, we've traded you to whoever. Here's your travel information. Uh, they expect you to report by this date. If you need any help, you know, moving or, or any sort of, you know, logistical help or whatever else, we'll try to help you. Or sure. you can call this person with the Dodgers, with the Tigers, with whoever, mm-hmm. and, and they'll help you get set up as well. Um, but it's still a very uncomfortable thing. And especially now in the middle of a pandemic, when you're talking about moving a player out of a bubble, testing to get into another bubble, yep. uh, maybe trading a player to Arizona or to Florida or to Texas, you know, a place that is a virus hotspot. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of players are here without their families. They've, they've left their families at home, mm-hmm. you know, to, to sort of try to keep them safe. Um, so there is a lot more to this deadline than there normally is. And, and I think the Red Sox are just trying to keep that those lines of communication open uh, sort of trying to be open with their players, with us in the media, and, and sort of give us an idea of what this mystery plan is for High and Bloom. Right. Uh, well, you know, it's fast approaching. Uh, the, it's, the uh, trade deadline is uh, about 10 days away at this point. Uh, so will it be interesting to see who is still on this roster or who is added to this roster uh, between now and then. Um, as we talked about last time, there are very few untouchable players. Uh, we talked about the possibility of maybe making sure Raphael Devers and Xander Bogarts aren't dealt away. But even those two players, particularly uh, Bogarts, there may be reasons why uh, you, you trade him away, too. I certainly hope not. I, I think he's one of the better players, uh, leader, uh, and uh, obviously an on-field producer. But we will see. We'll see what the Red Sox look like here in the next uh, two weeks. Uh, Bill, there's been some other developments in baseball uh, over the past week, and I thought that, uh, you know, since the Red Sox really aren't going to be holding our attention that much, <laughs> I don't think, in terms of making the playoffs, maybe we can touch upon some of these larger league issues. What a cynical take by you, really. <laughs> well, you know, I would much rather say that and be proven wrong and say, oh, what a pleasant surprise. They went on a 10-game winning streak, and they're right back in it. It's understandable. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't see that happening. I think that uh, it's tough when you're trying to piece it together with two pitchers, you know? It is. Uh, it is. <clears throat> and uh, by the way, just a tip of the cap to uh, Nathan Valdi, who had another, another strong outing last night against uh, against the Orioles as the Red Sox uh, won that game. Um, uh, but w- one of the things that came up in the past week is sort of the unwritten rules of baseball. Ah, yes. And uh, this, this came to light when... Uh, uh, Fernando Tatis. Fernando Tatis Jr. Hit a. Uh, that's how old we are. That's right. 
That's right. I, I was going to say that. I'm like, oh, that, that's his dad, isn't it? And like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the junior. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of juniors in baseball right now, right? Or at least the kids of, of there former are. players, the Bichette, Dante Bichette's son. and Vlad Jr. Vlad's Jr., right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, Fernando Tatis Jr. got, a, uh, uh, got himself into a 3-0 count. Bases were loaded. And uh, got a pitch that he could hit, and he hit it out of the ballpark. Yeah, late in the game, Padres <clears throat> Rangers. It was a ten to three game. I think it was the seventh inning or the eighth inning. Um, Tatis swings three zero and hits a grand slam. Yeah, uh, you know, and and it reignites the sort of it feels like centuries old discussion. It can't be centuries old <laughs> baseball. Well, it's been around since well, at least a century whenever. old, right? Uh, but it sort of reignites the old discussion about the quote unquote unwritten rules right. uh, of baseball and what exactly they are and how exactly they're enforced and who exactly should adhere to them. Um, Bill Corey, I'm sure you have thoughts. <laughs> My thoughts are pretty simple. That These are the pros. You know, I think if you are in Little League, it's one thing. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know there's a mercy rule for a reason in, in uh, those leagues. Uh, I think if you are a professional player, uh, you step into the box, you know, your job is to hit the baseball. And if you get a pitch that you can hit, you're going to swing hard and try to hit it. I don't think you're trying to up, uh, you know, upstage the other team or make them look bad or anything. But, you know, I think that in professional sports, there is no such thing as, uh, you know, the mercy rule. I think that uh, if uh, a pitcher takes offense to somebody hitting a grand slam, then maybe he should have made a better pitch. That's pretty much my thoughts on these things. And I, I know these things kind of come up from time to time because you figure, well, they're going to win the game anyway. What's the point? Well, you never know. You never really know, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I don't have a problem with it. Earlier this week, you, you, a couple days after this happened, actually, uh, you had the Phillies with a 7 nothing lead on the Blue Jays and the Blue Jays winning the game 9-7. to yeah. Uh, yeah. And so you, you go back and you think – to yourself, uh, you know, it's a seven-run game in the eighth inning, and, and granted, the Rangers only have six outs left or, or nine outs left or whatever it was. It was late in the game, um, but teams have come back sure. from from deficits, and uh, you know, it's it's a it's a generational thing. I also think it's a cultural thing. Um, you know, the the game is a lot more international now. Uh, you know, this sort of exuberance, bat flipping and trash talking and whatever else is, is a lot more acceptable. Uh, a lot more accepted mm-hmm. in, in other cultures than, than necessarily it has been in the United States. And, you know, for me, I love to see someone like Fernando Tatis. I, the energy that comes off that kid is, is magnetic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's an unbelievable talent. Uh, you know, I think baseball needs a lot more of guys like him and Alex Verdugo and Rafael Devers. Um, you know, guys who you can feel. You're not just watching them. You can feel them. Right. You could see them, right. uh, you know, sort of bouncing around on the field. And Devers has that big baby smile, you know, where it's like, <laughs> you know, he just looks so innocent. And then all of a sudden he rips this line drive 450 feet. And you're like, right. oh, my goodness. You know, look right. at this kid. He's unbelievable. Um, you know, I think that magnetism is what we need more of in baseball. And, and I hate when... Someone like Tatis gets choked by this sort of old guard that says, no, kid, don't do that. That's wrong. I, I yeah. can't stand that. Well, I mean, the, the truth is baseball needs to attract a younger fan base. Obviously, it's a game that, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of younger people find too slow, not enough action. You, you know, when fans were still being allowed at the games, you'd watch them yeah. on TV, they'd be sitting there looking at their phones for the most part. So uh, I agree. I think that, that the game certainly can use an, in, uh, an injection of youth exuberance. And, you know, in my mind, he didn't do anything wrong. He got a pitch that he could hit, and he hit it. And so, you know, it's not like he's trying to uh, intentionally embarrass the other team. But, you know, you're still competing. They're still professionals. Make a better pitch. That's essentially my, my feeling about it. So I, uh, But you're right. The old guard sort of rears its head and says, that's not how it was done. Okay, well, it's, that's not how it's done anymore. We yeah. we had uh, we had a few a lot of people weighing in on this obviously you know from different generations in baseball. <laughs> I, I thought Johnny Bench's comments were really interesting on Twitter. 
um, you know, Bench was fully supporting Tatis. You know, that's someone who played in the 70s. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, at, at a different time where swinging 3-0 in a seven-run game would have been diff- treated differently. Right. Uh, you know, Johnny Bench basically said, you know, all right, it's 3-0. You give the guy a strike, it's 3-1. and He throws a tough pitch on 3-1, and like a changeup or a slider or something like that. All of a sudden, it's 3-2. and And now you ground into a double play. The inning's over. Right. Go ahead and swing, kid. Yeah. I love it. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah. Ron Renneke debuted with the Dodgers in 1981, obviously played in, in a different era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said the general rule was if you're up by a certain number of runs and you reach a certain inning, uh, you know, I think the, the dividing line at that point was five or six. Yeah. Uh, don't swing 3-0, don't steal bases, or, or it was going to get handled. Yeah. Um, and by handled, people were going to get hit. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and, and as Renneke said, uh, umpires would let you do it. Um, you know, if someone ran 3-0 or, or swung 3-0, uh, in a six or a seven run game, the next batter was going down, yeah. and and everyone in the stadium knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and generally the the next half inning, someone was going to retaliate, and another batter was going down, and everyone knew it. Um, you know, and and as he said, he sort of straddled the line a little bit. You could see he was a little uncomfortable talking about it because this is sort of going against a lot of the things he was taught coming up. Um, but he made a good point. He said, if you want to coach or manage in this game. And, and Renicky has since the early 90s, you have no choice but to evolve sure. and, and to embrace new things and you know, to embrace newer ways of playing the game, uh, you know, sort of newer standards of conduct in the game, um, you know, sort of new information available to you in right. the game. It, it, the game changes. And you know, the people who are piling on Tatis about swinging 3-0 are, are people who are trying to hang on to something that I don't think exists anymore. Um, you know, I, I don't think baseball from the 19th 1970s and the 1980s, I, that culture does not exist anymore. Right. It's it is a, it's being a changed. different game, sure, sure. And you know, but you mentioned a good point too. You know, baseball can police itself too. You know, maybe Tatis uh, is going to. Uh, Get a uh, ball near the ear next time he's up, or so- something like that. You know, be- you know, b- baseball certainly has long been able to kind of uh, deal with these things in house. If if that other team really uh, was taken uh, by uh, t- taken offense by that, of course, the, the umps don't let you th- don't let that happen as freely anymore. You know, the the most disappointing <clears throat> thing to me, and I said this to a few friends, was the Rangers manager Chris Woodward was upset and gave the very old guard response. You know, I was surprised, I wasn't happy with it. You know, whatever else. Right. Uh, Kyle Hart, I actually thought had some good comments on it. Uh, the Red Sox starting pitcher. He said, "I'm responsible for every pitch I throw. Right. Whether it's three and zero in a ten run game, or, or you know, uh, you know, a two to two count, a one run game, or whatever. I throw the pitch. The hitter can do what he wants with it. If he hits it, that's on me. Yeah. Um, you know, and I and and I think the most disappointing comments though for me were by the Padres manager Jace Tingler, uh, who was on the Rangers staff. Uh, he was their field development coordinator under Woodward, uh, was hired by the Padres this year. He's in his first year as their manager. Tingler said that he was disappointed that Tatis missed a sign not to swing on 3-0. and uh, Apparently from the bench, hmm. there was a sign given to the third base coach, you know, give him the red light, do not let him swing. Uh, the fact that Tingler said that publicly, post-game, hmm. I thought was wrong. You you come you say that to him privately. Yeah. You bring him into the office. You have a conversation. And you say, Fernando, you missed a sign. I love the way it turned out. I, I love the fact that you hit a home run. You keep <laughs> keep playing the way you're playing because right. you're outstanding. But you missed a sign. I don't like that. Instead, Tingler post game says to the media, yeah, "I'm disappointed because you missed a sign." Yeah. There's only one answer there that's correct. Yes, I worked for the Rangers. I'm appreciative of the fact that they gave me an opportunity. But I'm the manager of the Padres now. Fernando's my guy. We're trying to beat him. And he's (laughs) outstanding, and I'm going to back him to the ends of the earth no matter what he does. And so I think Tingler's reaction, uh, maybe more so than everyone else being upset that Tatis is swinging 3-0 and, oh, my God, he's committing crimes against baseball. (laughs) I thought that his own manager – stuck his foot in his mouth yeah. in, in a way that was really regrettable. Yeah, you know, you, I, you, you almost never want to criticize a player for hitting a home run. You know, I, I I agree that if he missed a sign, you should probably just talk to him in private and say, hey, I'm glad you hit a home run, but, you know, you blew you blew off a sign or you missed a sign or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> so, Bill, there was, another, uh, there was another off-field, or I guess this was sort of on-field development, 
um, this week um, with uh, the Reds broadcaster, Tom Brenneman, who uh, unfortunately wasn't aware that there was a mic that was live when he uttered a homophobic slur Mm. that went out uh, over the airwaves. Got uh, obviously immediately uh, called out on it. There was a lot of big reaction on social media. Um, he apologized uh, an inning later or something like that. Soon thereafter, kind of a half-hearted apology in, in my mind, anyway. But uh, so in the um, in the wake of that, uh, he has been suspended, and his other gig, which is to call NFL games uh, for Fox, uh, is over at least for now. Um, you know, Bill, when I hear things like this, it just amazes me that now, first of all, I don't know Tom Brennan I've certainly heard him on the call. Uh, me neither. I, you know, I think sure. he's, he's very good at what he does. I mean, he's the son of Marty Brennan you know, these people who's a legend, right? Sure. Right. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. So I, I can't speak to say, you know, I know exactly what's in his heart. I mean, I think we have an indication, but it surprises me that somebody who is as, um, accomplished and experienced as he is, and I mean, we're not talking about somebody who's 25 years old, just out of J school, or you know, nope. uh, broadcasting for the first year or two of his career. This man is in his mid six, uh, mid 50s, uh, uh, I believe. He's been doing it for a very long time and very well, very well known. To say something like that, even if you don't think the mic is on, you know, it, just to me. Just it shows incredibly poor judgment, and it could could show a lot worse than that. Uh, his level of ignorance here is is both shocking and, and sad. Um, you know, and that and that goes for anyone of any experience level. Uh, honestly, it, it could be a kid out of J school. It could be someone who's done it for thirty years. Mm-hmm. The fact that he thinks it's acceptable to say that word in any sort of setting, whether it's private or public, is just completely unacceptable. Yeah, it's just wrong. Right. It's just wrong. You you wouldn't <clears throat> when you slur one group of people in the way that he did. It's just as offensive as if you used a different word to slur a different group of people. It has an equivalent effect, an equivalent hurt on different groups. If he used a word to describe black folks or or a word to describe Hispanic folks, um does he think that that's more offensive than using a slur to describe gay folks? No. I mean, obviously, no. They're, they're all they're, dreadful. <clears throat> they're all hurtful. You shouldn't no. be using any There's no excuse any for of any of them. them. No, of course None not. of them. No. And, and so when Tom Brenneman says that on a hot mic, which you should assume every mic is hot at all times. Right. And, and when, when, I, when, I, when, when I made the point that he's experienced, it, it, it doesn't mean that uh, you, know, you would excuse it from, from other people. It's just that he's been doing it for so long, he should understand that you know, things like this, can, like mistakes can happen. You know, that mic might be on. Right. You know, and I think if you've been doing it for as long as he would, uh, he's been doing it, you probably are much more aware of these things. You know, you're just more aware that, you know, uh, we're in the studio, and whether or not I think we're on the air, I need to be aware that this mic is on. I think you might be more aware of that if you've been doing it for 20 or 30 years than if you've been doing it for a year or two. Which makes me think about what he's actually saying in private. The, the fact that he felt comfortable enough to use that word. I can't imagine this is the first time that he said something like that. It would be an incredible, unfortunate coincidence if the first time he ever said something this bad was on, you know, a national bro- or was on a, a broadcast. You know, it, it's it's disgusting. Uh, his apologies were even worse. Uh, you know, they were just contrived, typical corporate speak for 2020. I'm a man of faith. That's not really what I believe. Well, your faith has nothing to do with right. this, Tom. Right. You know, you could worship God just like I do. You could not worship God. Right. I, I generally don't. Um, your faith has nothing to do with how you feel about a certain community of people um, and, and should not affect the words that you use to describe that certain community of people. Um, you know, and if you really are a man of faith, you wouldn't even think to use words like that right. describing a group of people. Um, you know, so I think when he, he's suspended, and to me, suspended is just 
uh, a corporate way of saying we need to take this to our lawyers and they need to figure out a way to fire him where we can't be sued. Yeah, I can't uh, imagine he's going to be back on the broadcast. He, I cannot he, imagine. He doesn't deserve to work again for the Reds, uh, you know, realistically for Fox doing football. Um, you know, and, and a lot of that, I think, is, is because we are in 2020 and there are a lot of qualified people who can do Tom Brenneman's job. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those qualified people are out of work right now because of the pandemic and what's going on. Our jobs at this point in media, sports media especially, like gold. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do anything or try not to do anything that's going to endanger my job. I, I sure, I'm sure you feel the same. Sure, yeah. And so for him to be just so cavalier about this, to, to do something like this, when you consider the personal standards he should be setting, the professional standards he should be upholding, um, you know, I don't see any reason for the Reds or Fox to give him a second chance, and, and I think he should move on and, and seriously you know, examine what he thinks and the way he feels. Well, I agree that I don't think he's, he's going to do a Reds broadcast again, and he's probably not going to do a national broadcast again. Uh, I don't know that he will ever do another broadcast again, but if he does, I don't think it'll be on a, on a platform that's uh, as, as large as uh, what he's been accustomed to. Uh, so uh, before we uh, wrap up this week's Twin Bills uh, uh, bill, I want to touch upon the, uh, the the ongoing COVID pandemic as it relates to baseball. Mm. This weekend, uh, there is a yet another series that is being uh, pushed off or postponed, if you like, and that is the Mets and Yankees series. Uh, yeah. With uh, some Mets, uh, was it players or coaches uh, tested positive here? Uh, for now, as we sit here on Friday afternoon, it's one player and okay. one staff member. Yep. And uh, so that's another uh, three games, I believe, that are going to have to be made up at some point. Yeah. Uh, with a uh, with a doubleheader, we've seen a lot of those already with the Cardinals. Uh, we saw the Marlins early on. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill, I, and you made this point a few weeks back, and it's a very good one. I think what we're seeing is, regardless of what is happening, baseball is going to is going to push on and get these games played because they want to get their sixty games in. They want to uh, get their season done. Um, you know, I, I do take my hat off to baseball for stepping in quickly and saying, "Okay, we're not going to play this game, and we're going to, uh, or this series, we're going to, you know, get to the bottom of it." But you wonder what the tipping point is. If you know, if if it's more than just a series here or there, and we start seeing flare-ups, is there a tipping point where they might say, "You know, we might have to suspend the season here uh, for a week or so and to get a handle on this thing?" Because at some point, you're going to have a lot of these teams mixing. Uh, I'd rather not say what the tipping point is or what I believe it is because I don't want to speak that reality into existence. Um, I, I don't want to say what I think it would take to yeah. shut down the season. It wouldn't be good. Because I, I, I don't want to tempt the fates like that. Um, I do think that you know, and, and as you just said, I, I think that once baseball got started, once they got to summer camp, once they got to the first week of games and, and got through those, mm-hmm. I think they were committed. And, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's a matter of them looking at quality of play and, and thinking it's you know the best that teams can put out there, or you know thinking that sixty games is representative in any way, or you know thinking that this year's playoff field is going to be like any other year. Right. Um, you know, I just think it was about trying to salvage as much as they could from really what is a lost season, uh, you know, trying to salvage postseason ratings, postseason revenues in, in any way that they could right. uh, and minimize the uh, financial losses that, that every team is going to suffer, that the players are going to suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that there was an agreement made between the owners and the players to, to try to do that. And I think generally in good faith, uh, the players are looking at each other and hoping that they're responsible um, and that they're not going out and, and that they're not you know, doing things to risk their own health and, and their teammates' health. Yep. Uh, you know, I think you saw with the Marlins, you had some reports of you know, some players going out uh, in Atlanta during some preseason games right. and, and spreading the virus to their teammates. You had some reports out of St. Louis of a couple players going to a casino and, and maybe contracting the virus and spreading it to right. teammates and their players. Right. And once that happens a couple times, I, I think you know, sort of the, the red flag is up for every other team. And, and you know, players are talking about this. Staffs are talking about this. Yeah. This, this, is, this is at the forefront of their minds as much as, as playing the game. Uh, on a given night uh, you know they want to be safe they want to be healthy um, you know they don't want to be subjected to this sort of thing going on and, and you know trying to trying to play 
when they make up all these games. Whether it's double headers or not, you know they don't want to play twelve games in six days. Or, or it, it's one thing like if you're the Red Sox and you're really, you really you have no chance uh, to get anywhere in the postseason. It's another thing if you're if you're a contending team and now all of a sudden you need to cram a bunch of games into a few days. That can have an effect on the performance and risk of an injury of a key player and on whole a whole sort of other things. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye. Obviously, the the uh, the Yankees are going to be in the hunt for. Uh, for some postseason uh, play, so uh, we'll see. We'll see how that that plays out. But sure. you know, you wonder. You wonder if if there is. And I I, I take your point. You don't want to sort of vocalize what what it might no, take. I, but I you wonder what I the, don't want to say. It. You don't want. You wonder what the tipping point would be. And I I tend to agree that it would have to be something severe and and really bad for for baseball to say, okay, we're just going to put the brakes on here and and stop it. Uh, so. Uh, Moving forward, Bill, here, uh, the Red Sox are going to do something that I don't think they've ever done in their history in the, in the coming days, and that is play a baseball game in Buffalo. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> that, that's right. And that's because they are going to uh, face the Blue Jays in the Blue Jays' new summer home. So how's that going? Uh, it, Buffalo plays like a launching pad, apparently. There have been a lot of home huh. runs hit out of uh, that that's stadium. That's weird. You don't think of Buffalo as like the, uh, you, you know, uh, what it's like in Colorado, do you? That's right. <laughs> you, you would think of that, uh, the Pacific Coast League, which, which is the AAA cousin of, of the International League and, and is a notorious hitters league. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of teams play at high altitudes, uh, in desert climates, and, and pitchers really have no chance in, in that right, league. Uh, right. They really get hit hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at the batting champion in that league every year, and he's hitting 350. Uh, you know, <laughs> the highest OPS in that league in a given year is like a thousand or yeah, you know yeah, 1050. Yeah. It's just the offensive numbers are incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, Buffalo certainly wouldn't have that rep, but apparently the park plays a little small. Uh, you know, the Blue Jays have taken advantage of that. They, they've got some power for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting just how quickly they were forced to adapt uh, by the decision made. Uh, by the Canadian government to not allow travel uh, from Canada to the United States in the midst of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Canada has done an excellent job keeping cases and and deaths down. The United States obviously has not. Um, And so I I think, you know, that reaction was, um, you know, it was at the federal level. The Blue Jays had no choice but to try to make the best of this. Uh, And so they're playing at their AAA home of the Buffalo Bisons. Uh, it's a nice enough stadium. It's it's relatively new. Uh, the Blue Jays have conducted a, a, a significant makeover um, in terms of signage, painting, locker rooms. Uh, they had to construct a, a video replay room. Sure. Um, you know, obviously there are uh, you know like clubhouse trailers in parking lots and and you know portable showers and, mm-hmm. and everything else. A lot of logistics go into. Right, it's this not. Season. It's not just that the, the the field itself has to be a certain dimension. You know, there's a whole sort of support system around uh, a major league stadium that has to be in place for for major league baseball games. Yes, and and 2020 has made that you know doubly, maybe triply difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of of the the planning that goes into it and and the considerations that franchises need to make. And you know, I think the Red Sox players have been pretty unanimous in the fact that that Boston's front office has gone out of their way to make sure that they feel comfortable uh, at Fenway Park. Right. It's They don't have a lot to work with at Fenway. Yeah. The, the spaces are so small and so tight. Right. I mean, they've turned, they've turned the luxury suites into basically locker rooms, yes, right? Yes. They, they can't use the clubhouse. And, and you know, they, they're, they're just, there's just not enough room in there. Yeah. Um, you know, you could go to the visiting or the home clubhouse in Yankee Stadium and, and still use it mm-hmm. and still be relatively socially distanced and, and be okay. At Fenway, you don't have that option anywhere. Yeah. So they've had to completely reconfigure the park. The Blue Jays had to do that in the span of a week or two um, after that government ruling. Right. They, they played a bunch of games on the road early. They played some of their home games on the road. Yeah, if I remember, they were scrambling. They, they, they considered Pittsburgh for Pittsburgh, a while. Pittsburgh, Baltimore and, right. were, were a couple of places. Cincinnati right. was another. Right. Um, you know, They served as the home team in a few of their road games, uh, getting to bat last. It, yep. it was just it, – it's their season – as a whole is very representative of, of I think what we've all lived through in 2020 the fact that the best laid plans have been completely thrown in the trash and mm-hmm. you've constantly been forced to adjust and you know you've constantly been uncomfortable um, you know that your routines your your way of life have, has completely changed um, and, and a lot of it is not by your own choosing uh, you know and I, I think Toronto just to to their credit to, to soldier on 
with a lot of young players in that lineup, yep. uh, a lot of really talented guys, you you have to think, and I said this at the start of the year, you have to think that at some point in September it's going to catch up with them because they're basically living out of a suitcase for you know, three months here. Well, hats off to them because they're they're you know they're uh, just above five hundred. I think they're in third place right now in the AL East, so they certainly have made the best of what I'm sure is a very difficult situation. Um, uh, and played, uh, you know, fairly decent baseball. So we'll see what happens when the Red Sox go. I'm, I'm interested to to watch those games on TV because obviously, I know I don't know what the Buffalo Bison Stadium looks like. I wonder if the Red Sox have made a call down here to to uh, the folks at McCoy and and ask them. So what's it like playing uh, in Buffalo? I'm sure they have. Uh, <clears throat> you know, Ron Renicky during summer camp spoke at length about how uh, he had consulted minor league managers and, and minor league coaching staffs. Uh, about the extra inning rules and, right. and how much that has changed, you know, starting with the runner on second Run base second, and the 10th. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's something that, that's been in the minor leagues for a few years now and, and obviously something that uh, Billy McMillan has a lot of experience with, the Paw Sox right. manager. We um, haven't seen that yet with the Red Sox, right? No, because they're usually blown out by that. No, so. they, they've come close. Uh, Mitch <laughs> yeah. Moreland hit a walk-off home run against, right. against the Blue Jays of all teams uh, mm-hmm. last Sunday. Yeah. Um, you know, and that was uh, that's the closest they've come. It was a three-three game in the ninth, and um, I remember a lot of the discussion in the press box at that point was, "Well, we're we're going to see, see it." it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I I would definitely think that in terms of logistics, in terms of you know where to stay, where to get catering from, uh, you know how to travel in and out, I, I would certainly think that uh, the Red Sox have consulted the Paw Sox on that and, and maybe the International League as a whole on sure. that. Uh, you know, th- these franchises, if you look at the media guide and you look at the amount of support staff that they all have, there, there is no stone unturned. Uh, you know, this is uh, a widespread, all-encompassing enterprise. Sure. It's not just a baseball team. No, and, and they're looking for any advantage, any piece of information that they feel might give them an edge. And, and who can blame them? Uh, Bill, uh, before we sign off here, I just wanted to uh, do a quick uh, kind of tip of the cap to Nesson, which has recently, well, not recently, but this this year has um, tried to have... uh, sort of in-game interviews with different players. Sure. Uh, now, you may not be aware of this when there are home games, obviously, because you're, uh, you, you're Right, you're I don't there. have the broadcast. But, but last night, they were, in, they were in Baltimore, and their guest was Cal Ripken. Yes. Uh, and he talked about his successful uh, uh, recovery from cancer and had, a, you know, obviously a very strong message about getting tested early. Yeah. And the Red Sox, uh, I want to say... Um, uh, I believe when they're playing the Rays had Wade Boggs on. They talked about uh, yes, you know Wade's career. Too. So, you know, I think even the Red Sox understand that might that we may not all be uh, you know glued to the television to watch the actual baseball league this year because of what's happening on the field. But I do find these kind of in-game interviews and the the rapport between Eckersley and Remy and whoever the interviewee is it's it's something I kind of look forward to. Uh, so I think that they've kind of done a uh, a good job. Uh, trying to sort of add what's the word add value to (laughs) to their product this year I I think uh, you know I have a a couple good friends who have the MLB package and and are able to watch games in in any market and and obviously you always look forward to the Dodgers because you had Vince Scully and you know you you get to see some of the great broadcasters around the league Um, the Nesson broadcast compares very favorably with just about any other that you're going to find out there. Uh, yeah, I think we're spoiled. I think, first we of all, are. Jerry Remy has done a very good job for a very long time. Yes. And, you know, uh, I, I may be biased because he comes from southeastern Massachusetts, oh, right, yeah, near the, yeah, yeah. right near the town I, I'm from. But, you know, uh, right, you know, the, Fall the, River the, Kid, right? The Westport Bureau. <laughs> and, uh, well, he's from Somerset, but uh, still close enough. And uh, But he's always, he's done a good job for a long time. He, you know, he's, he obviously knows the game. He's very well prepared and and you know he, he's always kind of a step ahead. He lets you know here's what could happen on this next play. Mm-hmm. And I think Eckersley is certainly very well uh, accomplished, knows his stuff, and he's just fun to listen to because of all his eckisms with the cheese yes. and the moss and everything else. But yes. uh, but beyond that, it's it's an enjoyable broadcast, even when even when the team stinks and they're out of the game, they somehow make it kind of uh, worthwhile. No, it's it's very good. Uh, you know, Dave O'Brien essentially sure. has to function as as a traffic cop. And and I think the best thing that Dave O'Brien can do is let Eckersley and Remy be the stars, and and I think yeah. that's that's what he does. He he's 
grown maybe more comfortable in that role the last two or three years of maybe taking a half a step back mm. and just letting those two guys go, uh, you know, letting Garen Austin go, um, you know, and just sort of drive the broadcast. And, and he sort of weaves in when he can and, and sort of pulls him back on track when he needs to. Yeah, a three-man booth is not always easy. It's, it's not, and, and I think, you know, the, you mentioned the interviews with, with Boggs and with Ripken, and, and I think it's a reminder to folks that players respect players. Sure. And, and certainly players respect players who have had great careers. And, and Eckersley is a Hall of Famer. Sure, and I think that, that sort of gives him some clout if he calls up some other Hall of Famers Definitely and says, hey, does. you know, you got five minutes to talk to us on the broadcast you know, Remy, while the Red Sox are losing, you know, 14 to 3. Or you know, Remy, Remy played a dozen years in the league and, yeah. and certainly has a lot of credit as a broadcaster now doing it for 30 years sure. or, or so. Um, you know, so. So those two guys have a lot of pull in terms of who you want to bring in, when you want to bring them in, yep. uh, whether or not you're able to get them. You know, you could, you could say to a player like Cal Ripken, "Hey, you're going to be on with that kid hmm. and Remy." Cal Ripken played against those guys. Sure. You know, he he knows them well, uh, certainly Jerry well, because the Orioles and the Red Sox played each other forever in the yep. AL East. Um, you know, I I, I think Ripken. Um, you know his detailing his battle with prostate cancer and his successful surgery. I, I thought that was you know really compelling. Um, I, I thought it, it certainly was more than just a baseball broadcast, which I mm-hmm. think is important. Um, my other takeaway was that Ripken's turning sixty, which makes me, yeah. a, as a forty-year-old, feel a little old. Uh, because Welcome to the club. Right? I, I mean. Cal Ripken is 60. He looks Eckersley's good, though. Eckersley's already looks, 60. He looks, you know, it's like right. you're watching these guys and you're thinking, hey. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking at my own birth certificate like, wow, the, the, the years are going by here, aren't they? Well, they, one of the topics they, they touched on was the uh, 25th anniversary of Ripken breaking the streak, which is, you know, they had obviously plans in place and then uh, with the pandemic, think things are uh, not handled, not going to be handled the same way. But yeah. yeah, you think about that. I mean, that's I remember that pretty vividly. I'm sure you do. I do. I watched yeah, it. Yeah, right. It I mean, was uh, on ESPN. You were a teenager at the time, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a big deal. Uh, and you know, that was that was a quarter century ago now. So yeah, it's uh, you know, it's amazing to think about the fact that you know that was 25 years ago. Uh, they they had some clips from the ESPN broadcast that night. You look at Camden Yards full. Yeah. When was the last time that happened? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, the Orioles were actually a competitive team. Right. In the mid to late 90s, when was the last time that happened? Yep. Um, you know, that was probably a moment that led Sports Center. When was the last time baseball led Sports Center for something that wasn't controversial? Wasn't, right. Right. For something that was a, a great achievement, a legitimate moment. It's probably been a while. Mm. Um, you know, and, and Ripken playing. You know, twenty one hundred games consecutively. I think he ended up at twenty six and yeah, change or, yeah. over, or so. 20, tw- over twenty over twenty five. Anyway, I'm pretty um, sure. You know that was long considered one of the most unassailable records right. in sports. Uh, Lou Gehrig playing twenty one hundred thirty games in a row. Um, you know, it just speaks to uh, the sort of everyman nature of Cal Ripken. The the fact that he was able to punch the clock and go to work every day, and and he's not healthy playing every day. There, there's no way that he didn't feel some bumps and bruises and right. aches and pains. And right. you know, much like Garrick, who who obviously met a terrible end, yeah. uh, you know, battling ALS. Um, you know, the Iron Horse, as he was nicknamed. Right. Uh, you know, someone who was just a constant on all those great Yankees teams in the 20s and, and in the 30s. Um, you know, so I, I think Ripken is he's iconic in baseball and, and for Nesson to be able to bring him in, uh, you know, someone who is an out of market guy, uh, Wade Boggs should be a little easier get for them. <laughs> yeah. They've had David Ortiz on yep. on the pregame as well. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I think you make a good point. I, I think Nesson very much in the same way the players, the owners and, and we are, are trying to make the best of a very difficult situation. You know, and, and uh, I think it may be a little bit easier these days because nobody's going anywhere. Everyone is pretty much home. So you might be able to yeah. take advantage of availability that doesn't exist. That's a, a good point. Particular baseball season, but still, uh, it it does sort of add value. It's something that I kind of look forward to on the broadcast, especially if the game uh, isn't that compelling. Although last night the Red Sox did perform uh, very well. Hmm. So, Bill, uh, <clears throat> we. Uh, we look ahead here to the week. The Red Sox, as I mentioned, are going to Buffalo. Then they welcome in the Washington Nationals, I believe, in the series after that. So that mm-hmm. so that kicks off uh, a uh, a couple of matchups with uh, NL East foes. I want to say the Braves come in after that. I think. Uh, anyway, um, you will be um, 
back up at Fenway Park when the uh, when the Nats come to town next yes. week. You looking forward to seeing that team, uh, Bryce it, Hopper and company? It, it, no, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, no, not Bryce Hopper anymore. No, 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 uh, uh, Scherzer and company. Juan Soto is, <laughs> right, is right, who you're thinking right. of. Uh, you know, certainly if if Max Scherzer is lined up to start yep. any one of those games, I I would very much look forward to that. Yep. Uh, you know, Max Scherzer is a Hall of Famer. Uh, it, it's that simple. He's a Hall of Famer. If uh, if he decided to retire tomorrow, he'd, he'd be going to Cooperstown in five years. Sure. Uh, Juan Soto is one of the brightest young talents in the game, a superstar, uh, 20, 21 years old. Yeah, crazy. Um, the type of talent that convinced Washington to let Bryce Harper walk to the Phillies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just a, a super player. Um, you know, Trey Turner, very exciting player for, for Washington, the infielder. Um, you know, so yes, there there is some talent there. Uh, you always like to see the defending world champions come in. It, it brings a little extra buzz for doesn't sure. Doesn't that seem defending world? It seems like a, a decade ago, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> when things were kind of normal. But you're right. It was. It's really just you know last fall. I was uh, <laughs> I was on vacation in California. I was in Santa Monica uh, by the beach for a few days, winding down. Uh, you know, getting ready to come back and start the college basketball season and you know i remember watching the last three games of that series sure uh, in in bars in santa monica and uh you know just how exciting it was the nationals and, and the astros played a great seven game absolutely series. Uh, yeah. you know great starting pitching in the series uh two teams who you really felt like were the best two teams really going at it uh superstars in both lineups um and you're right just how much it's changed from last October over the last 10 months. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really sobering. Yeah, yeah. And it seems, it just seems so much longer than 10 months just because of everything we've, society as a whole has gone through. Well, what did, what did, <coughs> what did you say the other night? You texted me and said it's, it's March uh, It's March 161st. like 157th, I think, or something <laughs> yeah. like that. I'm stealing a line from a good friend of mine, but that, that's, that's what it feels like, that March just just goes on in, in, indefinitely here. It really does. Uh, yeah, even though we're about to watch the, the leaves turn again here as we uh, approaching fall. But, Bill, anyway, thank you again for your time. We uh, we have really eaten up more time than usual here. We are over the 60-minute mark, which is good. Wow, okay. It means that we uh, we had a lot to talk about. Uh, we will reconvene in a week or so and see where the Red Sox stand. Thanks again, Bill. Thanks, Bill.